This is FBG Jen. And FBG Kristen. And I'm FBG Margot, host and producer. You're listening to the podcast that will help you keep a lid on the junk in the trunk and inspire you to live a happy and confident life. Each episode, we chat with motivational experts and celebs and share our own candid adventures in being healthy. If you're looking for a podcast that's equal parts hilarious and enlightening, well then welcome to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Love My Skivvies, a monthly subscription service for undies that are as cute as they are comfy. And ladies, these are designed for workouts and your everyday life. Just pick your size and your style, and you'll never have to think about what's in your panty drawer again, because badass women need panties that live up to our adventures. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Fit Bottom Girls podcast. This is FBG Margo, and on the line today, we have FBG Jen. What up? And we have FBG Kristen. Yo, yo, yo. Yo, yo. So, Kristen, this is somebody you're sort of friendly with, Dr. Sarah Boston, right? Yeah. Um, we have we have a, a couple of friends in common, and so she was actually in Sarasota, um, gosh, last year, maybe, and um, when she, she's now living in Toronto, but she lived in Gainesville, which I didn't know until I'd actually moved away from Gainesville. Met someone in Sarasota who was friends with her, and it turned out that um, she's just, like, amazing and just as funny in person as she is, like, in some of her online writing. And um, she's, a, she's a really amazing veterinary oncologist and very well known within that industry. And she's also the author of a wonderful book called Lucky Dog, um, all about how being a veterinarian being a veterinarian helped save her life when she had thyroid cancer. So yeah, I, I was like, and she's, you know, she's like one of us. She likes being healthy, being active, but she's, you know, she doesn't necessarily always take that type A personality that you kind of have to have in her field and take it to fitness. Like she just likes to run and do yoga and, and do, do the sorts of things that we like to do. So I thought she would be a great guest and I think I was right. You were absolutely right. So you and I were on this interview with her and she's so wonderful and warm. And I was, you know, so she was talking about self-care and being a veterinarian. And I didn't realize just how stressful that career is and how hard it is to be one. And, you know, we all hear those sad stories. So, but I wanted to ask you guys, you know, we're all animal lovers and we all have pets. And I kind of wanted to hear a funny pet story from you guys. Could we talk about cancer and stuff like that in the interview? And it's not a depressing interview, just so you know. No. <laughs> Please listen to the episode. But um, I, I want to, because, you know, we all just love our pets so much. So I wanted to trade some funny pet stories. So who wants to go first? Mine involves a squirrel. Ooh, Will you be able to handle it, Kristen? <laughs> uh, I hope so. If not, I'll just, you know, go away and you guys can finish the pre-show without me. <laughs> Okay, so my dog Sienna is a shepherd mix, and she's a rescue pup, and she's about 65 pounds, and she is full of energy. She's, gosh, she'll, she'll be 11 in October, so it's not like she's a young, young thing, and this happened just a couple of years ago, so she was still, yeah, probably like eight or something when this happened. She has always, like many dogs, you know, um, hunted squirrels, basically, and just run around the yard and bark at them and bark them, you know, chasing up trees and chasing them all around the fence and, and everything. One day, <laughs> we had very often, we'll, if it's a nice day, we'll leave our door to the back um, porch open. 
so that she can just kind of come in and out as she wants to. It makes her like so happy um, to be able to, as a shepherd, to keep an eye on us if we're inside, but then to also watch the backyard from squirrels and rabbits and everything. So she's sitting out on the back porch and I walk by the door and I look at her and I'm like, oh, like her mouth looks weird. (laughs) Like, what Uh is that? And she turns and she just has this huge little squirrel tail just <gasps> hanging out of the side of her mouth. Stop and it. I'm like, I know. I, and I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh God, thankfully my husband's home. Cause a lot of times this stuff happens when like, he's not home. She almost always kills things when he's not home. And I'm like, <laughs> oh God, what am I going to do? Sienna, stop killing animals. But anyway, so um, I'm like, Ryan, 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 like help. Sienna's got a squirrel. Sienna's got a squirrel. He's like, well, shut the door. So she doesn't come inside with it. I'm like, okay, good thought. So shut the door. Then we both go outside to try to get a squirrel away from her. And of course, she doesn't want to give it up. She wants to keep her a little prize. And Ryan goes to, well, it becomes a chase, basically. So Ryan starts chasing her around the yard. I come out to, I guess, help or (laughs) watch or... (laughs) I don't know. It's just like chaos at this point. So he's chasing her around the yard. Then Sienna starts trying to chase me to give me the squirrel. So she's literally like trying to run into me and push the squirrel into my legs. Well, Ryan's chasing her and I'm like, we're all three running around the yard looking like (laughs) insanity. I mean, I'm screaming. (laughs) We're all trying to get Sienna calm. Um, Our neighbors are like, because we live our backyard borders like a bunch of other yards and they're all like what what the hell are you people doing and it's just you know another um another normal day in the walters household oh, just god facing each other around the yard oh. and i will say for some reason our dog is like um terrified of this blue gate like she's got a lot of um fear of like loud noises and we had this little like baby gate that was up and it fell one day near her and it scared her and now she's <laughs> terrified of the gate so our solution to this problem, because our dog is super, she's neurotic, um, awesome, but neurotic. And our solution to this problem was, <laughs> it was brilliant. Ryan's like, oh my God, I'm going to go get the gate. She's so scared of the gate that she's going to drop the squirrel. And so I'm like, great. So she's still chasing me around outside. He runs in, gets the blue gate, comes outside. She's not afraid of other gates, just this one particular blue gate. It's not like we beat her or anything, it's, <laughs> she, but she's terrified of it. So like he just like stands outside on the back porch and holds the gate up, and she just, like, drops the squirrel and is like, okay, I'm done. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. It was, oh like, God. it was, like, a workout. It was, like, a family workout. But that's, yeah. but that could be, like, an old school, like, like silent film sketch, you know, like, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, you know, you just, like, chasing each <laughs> yeah. other in a circle. It all, it all ended well, except for, you know, I guess for the squirrel. It didn't, but no. Uh. Poor squirrel. Poor squirrel. Mm-hmm. Don't run in our yard, squirrel. Like, yeah, squirrel- yeah. Just stay, stay out of your out yard. Of- <laughs> Let that be a lesson. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, Kristen, your turn. Well, I, I mean, I've got a lot to choose from, but I'm going to go with one from actually our first dog, Yuki. So this was long ago, back when she was a puppy. We'd probably had her for, I don't know, maybe a month or so. So she was probably only four or five months old. And we took her, we took her with us to uh, to a friend's house 
where they had a yard and she was able to run around and play and there were a bunch of people there. So she was, you know, doing the puppy thing where she was going from person to person, loving on them and running around. And just at the end of the day, like she was so beat, she was so tired. So I, and she was a, um, she was a lab mix. So she was already not small, but you know, probably, I don't know, 40 pounds or so at that point. So I scoop her up and carry her to the car. Cause she's just like, I, I'm tired. I don't want to, I don't want to walk around. I don't want to listen to you. I just want to sleep. So I carry her in and I've got her on my lap in the car, which I know is not safe. Um, don't ride with your dog in your lap. They should be secured. But I was, you know, I was a kid, didn't really think about it. So I've got Yuki on my lap. I'm petting her. We're driving home. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. She just peed all over me in her sleep. Oh, I mean, and for being such a little puppy, my God, it was so much. And she never even woke up. She was so oh. Oh. little pupper. And I got home and it's just like, you know, my jeans, the the car seat, like everything was just soaked. So I got home and washed my jeans, washed the dog off, did the best we could with the car. And, you oh. know, she was like, she was really well uh, house trained at that point so it's not like she was going around peeing places it was so out of out of character so anyway it was funny and we just it you know it was gross for a minute and then I just laughed because you know I I loved that dog more than life you know right. so whatever is gonna happen as long as she's comfortable and happy I really didn't care but oh oh Yuki EP has a particular smell to it as well oh it does it so does I honestly <laughs> yes yes Puppy pee, I don't really find particularly offensive, to be honest. Yeah, I, it's not it's not too bad. Cat pee is rough. Mm. Um, cat pee is rough. <laughs> staring at Trixie, the pee cat, right now. She's sleeping <laughs> and being very cute at the moment, but um, that is not always the case. But yeah, the the puppy pee, yeah, it was probably mostly water too. She was, it was hot out. She drank a lot. She so, was well hydrated. <laughs> yeah. So Margot. What you got? So, so uh, this happened like a week and a half ago. We were, I was recording. We were recording. An ep- and I, I'll tell you guys who we were talking to afterwards. I won't say on the air. But I have this one. I loved the Aristocats when I was a kid. That's one of those Disney movies. And it had a white fluffy cat. And I, ever since I was a kid, I'm like, I want a white fluffy cat. I just want one. So a few years ago, I get a beautiful white fluffy cat, Sweet Sarah. Follow me at Brooklyn Fit Chick on Instagram. You can see for yourself. But she's an awesome kitty, but she has a nervous stomach. And every once in a while, she just has a poopy day. And yeah, so I'm at my desk. At the end of the desk, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my screen here. I'm doing her interview. And all of a sudden, I can smell her. And I look down and she's not doing it into the litter box, which is to the left of me. She's doing it to the lamp, which is to the right of me. And yeah, she just was not having a good day. And I look down at her and she's doing it all over the cables, like, you know, the the computer cables and stuff like that. And she's just looking up at me like, dude. I am so sorry. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> she's like, I am so sorry. I can't tell you right now. Well, when she has the, the bowel thing, it's just climbing into the kitty litter, uh, the pan can seem like really high. That, that's what the doctor yeah. says. 
I mean, you would think it was Mount Everest, for God's sakes. But she <laughs> she just kind of looks and goes, nope. And so she did it. And so I I never told you guys. I didn't scream out. I didn't freak out. I was very proud of myself. I just kind of like, all right. You are a pro. I am a pro. At Seriously. So, yeah. So she did it. And she kind of right away. We finished the interview. And I, I cleaned it up. And so she was in the show for a bit there. We just didn't know it. <laughs> wow. And, you know, that's actually... So that's something worth noting for all of you guys listening at home. Y'all have no idea the stuff <laughs> no that idea. goes on with our pets oh my God, while so we're true. recording. Thank God for mute. Yes. Because FedEx comes. FedEx all, all the time. time. FedEx. Yes. Um, yeah. Like the cat comes and like rubs up on things. I just try to make sure she doesn't rub on my microphone. Yeah. My dog had a seizure in the middle of one of our interviews. I remember that. Um, yeah. And I was like, I mean, I don't think that you can tell within the interview because I just sort of disappear for a little while and come back um you guys handled it but um but yeah I know that you guys have Jen I know you deal with the FedEx thing Margo clearly (laughs) oh I have my thing and and on top of that I live you guys know this I live between a hospital and two firehouses that's just the way New York is so every once in a while the the ambulances are going off and the sirens and the helicopters and you just would think it was a war zone and thank god for mute cuz you guys have no idea sometimes what we do to put this show together for y'all behind the scenes behind the That's scenes true. Um, <laughs> all right so let's just get right into our interview today with Dr. Sarah Boston Remember, this episode is sponsored by Love My Skivvies, a monthly subscription service for undies that we absolutely adore. Ladies, you got to check them out at lovemyskivvies.com. Okay, that's L-U-V-M-Y-S-K-I-V-V-I-E-S dot com. And for being a listener, you can even save 25% off your first month. Just enter the code FBG, that's for Fit Bottom Girls, FBG at checkout, and you're good to go. Again, that's lovemyskivvies.com, L-U-V-M-Y-S-K-I-V-V-I-E-S.com. Dr. Sarah Boston is a veterinary specialist in cancer surgery for dogs and cats. She spent much of her career in veterinary academia, including the University of Florida. She recently returned to Canada to start a surgical oncology service in the Toronto area with VCA Canada, and she could not be more excited to be home. Dr. Boston is also a thyroid cancer survivor and published author. Her best-selling memoir, Lucky Dog, How Being a Veterinarian Saved My Life, was published in 2014. She is here today to talk about the story behind her memoir, what it is like to survive thyroid cancer, and how to get the most out of your vet visits when your pet is sick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah Boston. Hi there. Hello, this is FBG Margo, and on the line today we have FBG Kristen. Hey guys. Sarah, I'm going to ask you the first question. We're just going to get right into it. Can you please talk to our audience about the process of writing your memoir, Lucky Dog, and what has been the reaction from your friends and family? Yeah, definitely. So when I started writing, I actually didn't know what I was writing. I wasn't sure if it was just for myself or my friends or maybe it would actually be a blog. And I just got really lucky and, and met uh, a, a writer in Toronto um, who was married to the president of the publishing house. Um, so it was kind of a, a very fortunate meeting. We were having a fundraiser for animal cancer. And I read what ended up being kind of the first chapter of my book at this fundraiser and he was there and actually sitting beside me. And, um, I think luckily I didn't really know who he was, uh, cause I don't know Canadian literati or really any literati. So I probably should have known who he was. <laughs> 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 uh, 
he also was very nice, like quite a humble person. And so he just introduced himself as Noah. And so I was like, hi, I'm Sarah. And uh, anyway, found out later that he was like actually kind of a really important person. And his name was Noah Richler. He's, he's actually a very famous author in Canada. So he liked what I had read and and got me in touch uh, with the House of Anansi, which ended up being my publishing house. And so from there, I started writing more um, and sent them some of my work. And then they invited me in for a meeting, which, to be honest with you, I'm so not in touch, or at least the time was so not in touch with the industry that I just thought that they were doing him a favor. And like, they just thought I was this cute veterinarian, and they were just going to give me some tips. So I had no idea what I was walking into. But they actually were offering me a book deal like right there. Holy moly. Um, which was amazing. Wow. Yeah. So that happened, which I wasn't expecting. But now in retrospect, I don't think people that busy and important would meet with someone just to be nice. So now it kind of makes sense. But I wasn't really expecting it at the time. And then they matched me up with a really wonderful editor who I think was good at working with first time authors. And, and they definitely spent a lot of a lot of time working with me. And she was really wonderful. And I think because I'm used to writing scientific literature where, you know, the reviewers, I don't know, it just seemed like a really easy process to work with an editor who was so supportive. <laughs> so even when she was saying she didn't like something or was cutting stuff, like I was like, she was just so nice about it that I was like, okay, uh, that sounds fine. So yeah. I, and then anyway, so we ended up with the kind of the finished product, which was the book. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of it. And yeah, I definitely had a ton of support from my friends and family. Most of the reaction, and I think this was Kristen's reaction too, but most of the reaction was like, People felt like they were out for coffee with me and they could hear my voice, uh, which which is great. I think that's a big compliment. And then I've also had a lot of feedback from a bunch of different communities. So um, the book's about, you know, my thyroid cancer, but also treating cancer in animals. So there's like the vet people and then there's the, the clients that have dogs with cancer that have really reacted to the book. And then uh, there's the thyroid cancer community, which has been great. And then also just the larger cancer community. I think a lot of people take the book to doctor's appointments because um, it kind of gives them something to do and take their mind off things when they're waiting in a waiting room, which which is awesome because I feel like I'm there with them. So that's fantastic, too. That's really cool. And yes, that was totally my my reaction as, as I was reading it because um, I've I've met Sarah in person. And yeah, I was reading. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. This is like we're hanging out. Um despite the fact that you're now in Toronto and not in Florida anymore, which is a sad loss for us Floridians, but totally get it. So obviously the fact that you are, you know, a, a leader in the field of veterinary oncology and you identify and treat cancer in pets had a, an impact, let's say, on how you handled your diagnosis and really even how you, how you came about like seeing it and determining that you needed to take immediate action. And in the book, you make some really interesting connections between yourself and your patients and also between yourself and, um, you know, and your doctors that you're seeing. So I'm wondering if you can share a few of the ways in which your background and experience helped, but also some of the ways in which it maybe made that process a little bit more difficult. Yeah, sure. So a lot of the book is trying to compare like our Canadian healthcare system and also the American healthcare system because I had some experience with that because I, I started my treatments and had most of my treatments in Canada, but then I had my follow-up when I was living in the States working at the University of Florida and then also comparing it to the system in, in veterinary medicine. And, and they're all different and they're all, you know, have strong things about them, but also they're all flawed. I was trying to sort of compare that and, you know, that's the other thing that's been really interesting, like 
people seem to take from this book what they need or what they think, which, which is also great when you write something like, and I don't think people are all taking the same thing. So some people are like taking from it that I think the Canadian healthcare system is just awful, which in the moment, maybe I did, but I, you know, overall, I still think it's better than the, the American system because it's socialized and people have access to healthcare. And, and in the end it was slow, which was very frustrating, but I did have really good access. And so I think, you know, when you ask about, well, what was the challenge as a veterinary surgeon who treats cancer in animals? I think the thing that was just, I just felt so impatient and maybe that's because I'm a surgeon. We're just impatient by nature, but it was, I couldn't believe things took as long as they took. Like I just, I couldn't understand it, you know, because our patients come in and they can get a CT, you know, usually like the next day or that day and they can get an ultrasound, the same thing that day or the next day and surgery gets scheduled within a week or so. And so I couldn't even get an ultrasound for a week and a half. And I just, I, I couldn't believe that. I think where it helped me uh, a lot was being my own advocate. And so I was told by four doctors that I didn't have thyroid cancer and, and dismissed, you know, in varying degrees by doctors. And maybe I was hysterical, but sort of treated like, oh, she's being a hypochondriac because she's a veterinarian. And she probably has had this mass in her neck for a really long time. And I felt like I wasn't being heard that it was new and that I knew it was new and that it was growing and that I was really concerned about it. And so I do think that being a veterinarian helped me because I, I wouldn't really be dismissed because I knew something, you know, I knew something was wrong. And I, I do think about people who don't have a medical background who are dismissed in that way, maybe wouldn't have as much strength to say, no, like there's something wrong. And, you know, this is the first part of the book, so I don't think I'm giving anything away, but, but my husband's a large animal vet. And so, cause I couldn't get an ultrasound right away. I just ultrasound in my neck, which you're not really supposed <laughs> wow. to do that, but I just used the ultrasound machine and I just was like, well, I just need to see, you know, I'm a scientist. I was just like, I just need to see what this looks like. You know, is it a big cyst that's full of fluid? That's probably gonna be benign. Or is it actually like, does it look like a thyroid carcinoma in a dog, which is actually exactly what it looked like. Cause they look exactly the same in a person and a dog. So yeah, I mean, I think, but you know, that's probably not the best thing to do, but I just, I did it cause I could, and I, I wanted to see. So yeah, <laughs> there was pros and cons, I guess, being a veterinarian. Yeah. Well, we're happy to say that you are a thyroid cancer survivor. Yay. Can you tell us just what are the unique challenges of living without your thyroid? Yeah, definitely. So um, thyroid cancer is, I mean, a lot of thyroid cancer survivors do not like this term. And I don't think I do either. They'll call it good cancer because for, for the most common form of thyroid cancer, papillary thyroid carcinoma, which is what I had, the success rate for treatment is extremely high. But the treatment does involve removing all of your thyroid and then usually following up with radioactive iodine. So that's how I was treated. So yeah, not having a thyroid, I mean, this is sort of the tricky part about being a thyroid cancer survivor because people say, well, it's good cancer. And, you know, they'll say things like, well, if you're going to get cancer, it's a really good one to get, which is kind of a crazy, like, that's kind of a crazy thing to say to someone who has cancer because there's nothing really good about it. But, and you do, most people do survive, which, which is all good. Um, but the negative is like, you, you can't keep going on and on about not having a thyroid because people don't really want to hear about it. And they're like, well, you're fine. Like you're still here and you're a survivor and you have no metastatic disease and you're, you're going to be a long-term survivor. This is not going to be your life limiting problem. And of course I'm grateful for all of that, but it, but life was better when I had a thyroid gland that functioned. So I think just for me, I think the biggest thing is like I used, and, and some people say it's age and, and maybe it is a bit, but I don't think so. Cause it sort of happened. It coincided right with losing my thyroid. You know, what I do is kind of 
tense, it's busy hours. And I used to feel like I had limitless energy. Like I could just keep going and piling it on and it, and it didn't matter. Like I could just do whatever I was doing in my day and then I could still do stuff in the evening and I could do on call. And when you don't have a thyroid, that just doesn't, you just, it just, you become more limited and you kind of realize there's only so much energy. You know, when I travel, um, my jet lag is crazy and I like it. I used to be able to adjust a lot better and now like it'll take me almost the whole time I'm away to kind of get used to the time zones and stuff. So those things can be a little bit challenging for people that either have thyroid disease or you just don't have a thyroid. And and then now, see, I feel like I'm complaining and I said I don't like to do that, but you feel like you're always a bit too high or too low. And it's just it's just hard to find it because nothing is going to be as good for you know any kind of hormone that's managing your metabolic rate. Nothing's going to be as good as what Mother Nature is doing for you. And so um, so yeah, it is challenging, I think, for people who either have severe thyroid disease for other reasons, or people who have had their thyroid removed for thyroid cancer, it is really challenging. And it's sort of a lifelong thing that you're trying to get that balance, um, and sort of trying to find your energy. And I've just really had to kind of recognize that in myself and like actually say no to things and, and recognize that I need to have still some energy for my husband and my dog and my personal life, you know, because it's not it is kind of like a a limited thing now like it it has a limit so that's been kind of the biggest thing for me I guess trying to trying to figure that out yeah well you know I really appreciated um throughout the book you were really candid about like about the emotional aspect of of all of this so like of the you know before you had the diagnosis and you know were I mean I know that you were certain that it was cancer but before um even the doctors were agreeing you were like well so if it's not cancer, then I'm just like here with a lump in my, in my throat. And you know, that like, that has its own significance and it still super sucks. But then, you know, like if that's not cancer, then, okay, cool. I'm just going through all of this and freaking out over something that isn't even cancer. But if it is cancer and it's the good cancer, then that's a whole other thing. And as somebody who has been really fortunate and not gone through any of that myself, I, I just thought that it was really interesting and it, it gave me a little insight into maybe how I can better react to other people who, who are telling me about really any sort of a diagnosis, right? Um, because regardless of what's going on, if somebody is is struggling and is freaking out, have compassion, right? <laughs> so anyway, that's not really my question, but I just, I thought that that was, that was really cool. What I'd love to know though is how would you say that going through this experience and being a cancer survivor has changed your worldview aside from, you know, the changes you've had to make because you don't have a thyroid. Like, do you eat differently now? Do you exercise differently? Do you find that you care more or less about certain things? Yeah, I think, I don't know that I, I don't really eat differently. I do a lot of yoga and I think that I, I did a bit before, but I think it just helps me because it's just a perfect exercise if you're not always sure how you're going to feel on a given day because like no one cares if you just lie down on your mat for a while which you know is hard in other modes of exercise yeah <laughs> just, you can't do that just, in CrossFit. Hit, just mm. yeah I'm just gonna hit cross I'm gonna hit my child's pose for a while and just, <laughs> just chill here so I always, yeah, just pause at 5k always, you know I like that yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um but I've done I mean I've done other things like you say that like I sort of got on this kick when I was in Florida that I did a half marathon every year and it was kind of like it was just my thing to sort of say, like, suck at cancer, like, I'm going to do this. And I, I mean, I don't know, like, I, don't, I don't know if that was wise or not, but that I just kind of got that in my head that that was something I was going to do. I think I think the big thing, which 
I mean, I don't know if I always keep it in my mind, but I think when you go through any kind of experience, it doesn't matter like if you have a breast lump and you have to go through all the diagnostics and in the end it was benign. I think when someone goes through something like that, people really dismiss them and they go, oh, well, you're fine. Even though they've maybe just gone through a few months of like pretty significant stress. But I think the good part of that, the good part of going through thyroid cancer or good cancer is it does make you sort of reevaluate, you know, like the fact that we're all going to die. I know that sounds really negative. I don't think it has to be, but like, this is it, right? Like I'm in my forties, like this, whatever I'm doing with my life, I better be wanting to do that because that's it. <laughs> so I think anyone who's thinking like, oh, I'll just do this for five more years or like, you know, I'm not really happy with what I'm doing, but I'm just going to keep doing it and then hope it gets better. Like, I guess I would encourage people to sort of like think about that, you know, because you could just find out that you had thyroid cancer, you had another cancer that was maybe going to be more significant or impact your life more. And then what would you do? Right. And I think if the answer is I wouldn't do this job anymore, or I would find another alternative, or I would try to find something that makes me happier, then maybe you should do that, whether or not you have cancer. So anyway, I know that sounds really preachy, but I think that's what people kind of go through. And I forget though. And then I kind of like have to remind myself like, oh, wait a second. Like, are you happy in your life? And yeah, it's been part of my moving around a bit. Like I moved down to Florida for five years because I was kind of on this like, well, I'm just going to give it a go and see what it's like to work at a big American school. And I did enjoy a lot of things about that experience. But ultimately, I think I'm too Canadian to live in Florida. And I was really homesick and I kind of wanted a break from the academic. I don't know what else to call it, but it's kind of a grind sometimes. Um, I just decided that I want to do something different. And so decided to move again and came back home to Canada. You know, recently I just started a new job and I'm super happy. So yeah, putting the effort into a move or a change just to, if you think you can be happier, I guess. That's a long answer to your question, sorry. <laughs> no, it was good. Cause that was, it was a really long freaking question for you. So <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> I'd love to learn a little bit more about the one cancer approach that you mentioned in your book. Can you tell us what exactly that means? Yeah, well, I think this is what you're referring to. And if it's not, um, jump in and tell me, but I guess one health or one cancer, there's a lot of cancers that animals get that humans also get. And, you know, this is something that is actually emerging, like you'll hear it a lot in healthcare now. It's not really new to veterinarians, but but we're happy that our physician colleagues are kind of saying, oh, hey, you know, we should work together. But um, really the idea behind One Health or One Cancer is that, you know, animals do get a lot of the same diseases. They live in our environment. Um, we share a lot of genetics with them. And, and so, some of the advances in animals or some of the things we could work on in animals might help people and vice versa. Um, and so just to try to not be so compartmentalized and, and think of the disease as a whole. So probably the best example in my field and what I do is, is bone cancer or osteosarcoma. It's much more common in dogs than it is in people. Um, and the diseases are extremely similar. And so ways that we treat that disease in dogs could actually really help people and also help dogs, which of course I'm, I want to help people, but my whole life is about helping animals and treating animals. So I don't want to use the dogs only to help people. I want it to help benefit everybody. So that's kind of the idea behind, behind that. So after everything that you've been through, both personally and then just your experience as a doctor, has all of that come together to change the way you treat your patients and or their owners, or has that sort of just stayed the course? Um, I think there's been some subtle changes. So 
And I think like I have a lot of, you know, I don't even know if it's empathy because it's what I went through, but um, you know, I understand how people are feeling. I understand how anxious they get. And I think there's a lot of things I can do as a veterinarian to kind of help them with their anxiety because a lot of, you know, I don't think it matters if it's a dog or a person, a lot of the anxiety is just coming from what is it and what's going to happen. I think once people know that either about their dog or themselves, they do calm down. Like having a, a diagnosis and knowing exactly what's going on and then having a plan, it, it, I don't know, it relieves that anxiety. So I try to get to that with my clients as quickly as I can to figure out what's going on. The other thing I do do, and I don't know if this is related to just experience or my own experience, but I actually, sometimes the way things have been set up in veterinary medicine is people come in for their appointment and then, you know, they have some diagnostics done and then surgery happens the very next day. And I think that works for some types of surgery and it's very efficient and, and people like it. So, you know, if a dog has a ruptured cruciate, it's pretty obvious they have a ruptured cruciate and getting them in and getting them scheduled right away. It makes sense for everybody. I think for the cancer cases, I actually, I can't work them up that quickly because they usually do need advanced imaging and they need a biopsy and that takes time to get that information back. And I also actually like my clients to go away and think for a bit because a lot of the surgeries I do are quite big and involved and expensive. And I like people to have some time with their family. Like once they know what's going on with the disease and what the plan would be, I, I like them to go and sit down and talk as a family and think about that and take a few days. They usually can't take weeks because they've got to make a decision for their pet. But I kind of like them to, you know, I say I like them to go away. It doesn't sound very nice. But I do like them to, to kind of have some time with that and sit with that, make sure that that's what they want. Um, so I think that is a change. And then, I mean, I think the other thing is I don't put so much pressure on myself to get everything done, like, immediately. I, I sort of had this epiphany moment where I was, rushing around. This was at the University of Florida. I was like rushing around and dealing with my own cases. And then someone from the medical oncology side, which we were all integrated, wanted me to talk to these owners. And so it's like 730 or eight at night. And I'm going over this huge long discussion. And actually, it was about thyroid cancer, that particular case. And maybe that's why I remember it. And I was saying, you know, trying to please them. And I was like, we can do surgery tomorrow if that's what you want to do. And this family just looked at me like I was a crazy person. And they were like, we don't want to do surgery tomorrow. And I just thought, well, what am I doing? They don't even want this. And I'm staying here super late and doing this consult at eight at night. And they, this isn't what they even want. They feel pressured. Like they feel, and I, and I was just, that was a real moment for me that I thought we don't have to be, you know, we have to be efficient. We have to give good service, but it's getting almost ridiculous what we're doing. And we're, and it's impacting my whole life. Cause I'm here at eight at night, you know, doing something that I could definitely do tomorrow or do the next day at a scheduled time. That's a time when is more normal to be at work. So that's been a bit of a change for me. And maybe it's due with my thyroid too. It's just, I can't, I'm not the energizer bunny anymore. I kind of have to recognize, like, let's put some reasonable time frame, like give good service, but also be reasonable. So I'm trying that. I don't know if it always works, but I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure just being mindful of that is like a big step, you know? Yeah. Just trying to be a little bit aware of what, what is reasonable, what's, re what is reasonable service and, and trying to care for the client and care for the, the patient, but also care for myself. That's not really hokey, but that, but that's what, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to follow up with on, um, on what you were just saying regarding when a family gets a cancer diagnosis. And I, I know that sometimes people go in and they, you know, they're going in because their dog has a giant mass and they suspect that that's probably the case, but I'm sure other times they're not entirely sure what to expect. Do you have any advice for, um, for pet owners who come in and really have no background in cancer or maybe even 
really in veterinary medicine period, on how to best communicate with their vet. Um, because I know that can be really tricky to make yourself heard and then to make sure that you're getting the information that you need as someone who doesn't speak, you know, vet. So do you, having gone, having kind of been on both sides of this, um, do you have any advice that you'd offer? Yeah, I mean, I think as a profession, you know, this is where I would say comparing the healthcare systems, I think veterinarians do a much better job of this than um, the human side. Uh, the human side is usually like stuff kind of gets run past you. There's not a lot of discussion of options and it's really fast. I think that for better, for worse, veterinarians take much more time. And I say for better, for worse, because we have issues with compassion fatigue in our profession of people maybe maybe giving too much time. And But anyway, that's what it is right now. I think I think overall veterinarians do a pretty good job making sure people understand things. We usually provide written information as well um, so people can go home and read it, um, which for me didn't happen with my thyroid cancer diagnosis. Like I didn't receive any information. I sort of had to go and look for that myself. I would say asking veterinarians, if you don't have all the information, asking for sources of information, trying to stay off the kind of crazy interweb searches, looking at stuff <laughs> is just, yeah, like there's just a lot of crazy out there and it's just not going to help. And I, you know, I sort of, I understand why people do this. They do this for themselves. They do this for their pets. They do this for their kids. But, you know, if there was a cure for that cancer, I probably would know that, you know, and, and like it would probably be a known thing that, you know, <laughs> wouldn't just be the secret thing that you found on the Internet. It would be a known thing. So, you know, I just say be really careful with the sources that you're looking at. There's some decent sources for, you know, veterinary veterinary medicine or, or, or animal owners that are looking for information. But there's some that are honestly just awful. Like there's one that's coming to my mind and I won't say who it is, but it's not a very nice person either, but they put all this stuff out about raw food curing cancer and it's, it's garbage. I don't know what else to say. It's just garbage. And people get, get kind of hooked into that. And of course they want to believe that, but if there was a diet that cured cancer, like everyone would know, it would just be a known thing. So, you know, I'd say be really, really careful with that kind of information because it's in the end, it's just going to hurt you and possibly hurt your pet. And then the other thing would be try to bring a friend with you because a lot of people are so emotional in their appointments. And actually this is in human the human medical field as well. They don't they don't remember anything. They don't ask good questions. They don't write stuff down. And so if they have a friend there who's a little bit more uh, removed from the emotions of the situation, they can sort of be there to remind you what questions you wanted to ask. A lot of my clients, this just happened to me. I had clients that brought in a list, like a typed list of like 20 questions. I think that's great. I usually ask them to wait until I've gone over everything first because I, I think I do a decent job of answering most of the questions that I know what questions people have, but I think that's great. And then at the end I can say, okay, what didn't I get on your list? You know, let's go through it to make sure people get their questions answered. So I think bringing a list of questions is a really good idea because you're, you're probably going to forget. And then, I mean, this is a human medical study, but most people retain about 10% of what a physician tells them in a medical appointment. So it's just something to really? keep in mind is that, yeah. So <laughs> having a friend there to take notes is a good idea. And because People are just so emotional and keyed up. And I don't think it's any different in a vet appointment. I think people don't retain what they're being told. So also, like, a lot of people, because we have cell phones now, a lot of people will put their spouse on speaker, which is totally great. Um, so there's, a, you know, if that person couldn't make it to the appointment, they can just listen in. And, and maybe because they're not in the room, they can be taking notes or something like that. So um, I think all of those things can really help. And if you have a friend who's somewhat medical, I mean, having them around or having them to bounce things off of is also a really good idea because ultimately you're that pet's advocate. They can't talk. You're there to make all their medical decisions, all of their, you're, you're basically in charge of their entire life. So you kind of have to, you have to be their advocate. That's kind of your, you know, your ultimate role for your pet. I have a cat that takes Prozac 
uh, for behavior issues. So I have to go to my vet once a month to pick up her medicine. And most of the time I go in there, you know, it's fun. I like to see the cats and the dogs and everything. But every once in a while you go in there and it's just the sadness. You can just kind of feel it. You know, that somebody had to put their pet to sleep or whatever. And I just wanted to ask you, like, how do you handle that stress and that sadness that, you know, you, ha- you definitely have to deal with from time to time? How do you handle it? Yeah, I mean, I think this will sound weird, but I think humor helps me. Like, that's part of my personality and, and my life. Um, you know, it sounds like treating cancer in animals would be really sad all the time. But that's one thing that's that's quite awesome about surgical oncology is, like, some of my patients, I cure them with surgery and they just go live their life. So I think I hang on to those moments because that's pretty great. Also, just, you know, I think I focus back on the animal and just trying to think, okay, how how can I help you? Like, how what, how can I help your life be better, even though you're sick and you have cancer? But like, what can I do to make you less painful, you know, make you feel better, even if it's going to be short term? And then I would say most of the time I get I get a lot of joy out of the owner's helping the owners. And I say most of the time, because not all owners treat veterinarians very well. Um, there's a percentage of them that actually can border on abusive or, you know, that relationship isn't a good relationship. But most of my owners are excellent. And, you know, they're very thankful. And there's owners that I'm still in touch with that, you know, are still popping up on my social media and thanking me. And um, so I think that those are the things that kind of sustain me. Um, we do have some issues in our profession with, you know, like I said, compassion fatigue, and also sort of an emerging problem of us again it's not all of them but a percentage of owners that can be abusive with the staff and uh with veterinarians um which it's a problem you know i, I think i don't know what's going to happen down the road with the profession but i don't think it's something that we can accept as a profession because uh, as you said there's enough sadness with just sick animals <laughs> um that's that's kind of enough for us you know without having to deal with people that are being really aggressive but i coined this phrase in florida but some of the clients that i experienced there were like sad, their pet was sick, but it would come out as anger. So I called it being sad mad, um, which again, that's my humor, sort of like kind of trying to make light of that situation. But it's it's not a light situation when you see like it kind of goes through like a tsunami through a vet hospital of like people being so upset by being treated so harshly by someone when they're when they're really just honestly there trying to help. Um, so I think that's the hardest thing in our profession, is, you know, is trying to figure out how to deal with that. The the fact that there's sick animals there and that, you know, sometimes an animal has to be put down. I think we have that. Like, I think as a profession, we sort of have figured out ways to manage that. And, and, you know, even putting a pet down is not, I know it sounds really sad, but it's not sometimes. Sometimes it's a family coming together, telling that pet how much they love them and we're relieving their suffering. And so, yeah, on the surface, it's sad, but there's something about that that's actually really beautiful. And, and like, you're helping them, you're helping the animal, you're helping the family. So I think that's sort of how I, I can deal with that particular situation and not not just be sad all the time. Could you talk a little bit more about what compassion fatigue is? Because I, I'm guessing that that's a term that not all of our listeners are going to be super familiar with. Yeah, definitely. So it's a it's kind of all the helping professions would experience some some degrees of compassion fatigue. And I think it's something that all the health professions are kind of looking at more closely. But essentially, it's, you know, you're, you're spending so much of your energy caring for your clients and your pets and others, and maybe being a bit immersed in the sadness part of things and sort of getting a little not caught up. That's not the right. I don't think that's the right way to say it, because it sounds like it's your fault, but just spending so much of your energy on that and trying to and trying to help and feeling like you're maybe not getting anywhere. And then also, you know, I think a big part of it is not taking breaks and not, you know, 
practicing self-care. I think as a profession, historically, veterinarians are very bad at self-care. And there has been something, I think, I think historically, because I'll say that and be hopeful because I think it is starting to change. But it's almost like if people need a break or say that they need to practice self-care or it's too much for them, um, that they're judged by other professionals and like you're not tough enough and, you know, you need to be able to hack it. And and uh, this is what I did and this is what it's like to be a vet and this is what you signed up for. I think we're reaching almost a crisis in our profession that we that's just not acceptable to treat each other like that anymore. And, you know, I think we recognize it's not effective. We have a lot of problems in our profession with people feeling burnt out. Uh, we have a high suicide rate in our, so it's kind of gotten to the point where that just isn't, just, we can't treat each other like that anymore. We have to recognize for ourselves and for each other that, you know, you, we can't just keep on going and saying, well, this, toughen up. This is what you signed up for, because I just don't think that's sustainable for the profession. So there's a lot of attention now in veterinary schools and, you know, I think on our profession as a whole of trying to take care of ourselves and sort of that you know, that adage that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't really take care of others. And I don't think that's just a veterinary thing. I think that sort of translates to mothers and working mothers and, you know, working fathers and people who are trying to do too much. It doesn't matter what profession you're in. But I think it is starting to be recognized in our profession that we do need to just sort of take breaks, take time out, um, take care of ourselves, recognize when we're feeling compassion fatigue. Um, the true sense of compassion fatigue is that you basically run out of compassion and you don't feel compassion for your patients anymore. And I think every veterinarian, including myself, goes you know, we have a moment where we realize that's happening to us and it's not the end of the world, but you do need to kind of say, oh, this is happening. You know, I need to, I need to pull myself back. So signs of compassion fatigue uh, in veterinary medicine, you know, people need to recognize it in themselves. And it's something that I think all veterinarians will experience at some point. And I don't think it, you know, it doesn't have to be the end of the world that you, you are feeling compassion fatigue, but you need to recognize it and then do what you need to do to kind of pull back, take a break, take care of yourself. Um, but a sign of compassion fatigue would just be that you can't see one more case or you just don't have compassion for one more case. You're too tired and given everything you have in that day or in that particular week. And you just, you're not feeling like your true self and your compassionate self for your patients. What is your self-care? You know, when you recognize that in yourself, is there, or is there something that you do on a regular basis to kind of check yourself? Is it yoga or is it something else? Um, I think it's a bunch of things for me. I mean, I think having a little side life in writing and, and blogging and I'm trying to do some more creative pursuits. Um, I think that's really been really wonderful for me because it's something that I enjoy and it, it, it can be totally separate from veterinary medicine or it can kind of come alongside veterinary medicine. So, you know, I think just having something outside of work that's not work related um, is really helpful. Taking breaks. I mean, this is something I'm not proud of, but, you know, kind of going through the whole academic, trying to get tenure, um, that process, you kind of feel like uh, it's never good enough. I just learned a term, I think it was in the New York Times, I can't remember, but someone was writing about the insecure overachiever. So it's not my term, and I don't know who coined it, but it's beautiful. It's, it's <laughs> It completely captures how I was feeling, and I think how a lot of academics feel and how a lot of veterinarians feel is like you sort of are trained in this whole system where what you're doing is, is not enough. And so I found myself working all the time on weekends, and whether that was patient care or trying to finish an article, or trying to review an article, or whatever it was that I was doing, writing um, PowerPoints, um, I, I would work every weekend. And I sort of had this epiphany, which probably lots of people have had this way before I did in their career, but that that list of things that you have to do is never, like it will never get done. And it doesn't matter if you work every weekend or not, there's just going to be this list of tasks that have not been accomplished. And so I kind of stopped working on weekends, it, unless it was patient care related, I stopped 
working on weekends. And now I'm proud to say that I'm two and a half months behind on a textbook chapter that I'm authoring. (laughs) 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 I'm actually a bit, I'm a bit stressed about that, but um, I do need to get it done. But the, you know, I think, I think just trying to say like, okay, this is going to be time for myself and really trying to stick with that is really, really important. doesn't really matter what your schedule is or what you're doing, but trying to say like, this is my time and I'm going to do something that's not related to work. So I think that's what I, I've been trying to do, but I, you know, I don't know, I don't know the answer, but I think the biggest thing is just have something for yourself. Yeah. And I think, you know, we probably see that in a lot of fields, but it's, it's a lot harder to break through in a field where you're, you know, you're the person people are coming to in like life and death situations. Um, Cause when I get sick of things, I'm like, Oh, I don't want to write anymore. So fine. We don't get a new recipe. Like <laughs> nobody's gonna, you know, nobody's pet is, is going to be sick because of me. So I think that's, that's really true. I have been very, very, very fortunate to get to know a lot of amazing veterinarians because my dog has had all kinds of health issues. Um, and she has more health professionals in her life than I do, but they're all great. And I know that you have had some thoughts on the best and worst ways to show your vet's appreciation. So coming off this chat about, you know, compassion fatigue and, you know, the the difficulties of being a vet, what are some ways that if we want to be that good pet owner, that rock star pet owner, and not the one who is mad sad, what should we do? And what shouldn't we do to show our appreciation? Okay, so I make jokes about this in the book, but um, I think any form of appreciation, like whatever vets always love that, you know, and the staff really love it. I think for me, recognizing that it's not just the surgeon, there's a whole bunch of people, there's a huge team of people that are kind of making all these things happen. And you might not meet a lot of them. So just an awareness that there's a team. And so, you know, if you decide to, a lot of people bring food or presents, which is amazing, but trying to bring stuff that people could share. I like when people bring stuff that's healthy, because a lot of people bring donuts, because it's just like the thing. And it's especially in Canada, but it happened in the States too. So I always like, I always love it when clients go out and buy healthy stuff. Uh, I think that's really cool because we end up stuck in a clinic all day and there's just like donuts and people eat them. And I don't know, maybe I think about that. I think about people's health and I think, oh, if only someone had brought like a fruit platter or something, because that's what people would be eating. Um, So that's really wonderful. I love when people send me cards. I think that's awesome um, because I love to hear how they're feeling. So that's always super appreciated. I think any form of Really, any form of saying thank you is very much appreciated. Something else that's happening, probably to lots of businesses, but to veterinary medicine as well, um, is people are trying to go online and have their clinic on Facebook. You know, something that has happened, like, rightly or wrongly, if someone has a bad experience, they'll go on and just write a horrible, scathing review. And that really, I mean, I guess people have to be true to whatever their experience was, but that can really hurt a lot of people in a clinic. And so I think... If you've had a good experience, just taking the time to put that out there and, and publicly thank your veterinarian or the, you know, the person at the reception who was like extra careful with you and or the technician that helped you get to the car or maybe some of the people you never met, but that, you know, helped with your pet. And if you had a good experience, I think it's always good to share that. I think, you know, this has nothing to do with veterinary medicine, but people are always a little more willing to share a negative experience. And so all that social media stuff gets slanted towards the negative. And I definitely say like, you know, I actually, you know, I haven't experienced that a lot personally, but I have a lot of friends and I'm connected to a lot of people in the veterinary community. It hurts people so much when that happens, when there's like a really really horrible review and it's totally unfair. It's totally one-sided. And then because of confidentiality, they, they can't do anything to defend themselves. And so, you know, 
yeah. So I think that I, I won't even come up with examples. I've so many in my head, but I think just, just being aware of that, if, if you've had a really good experience, find a way to share that and also find a way to recognize that that's a team. Like that's a, that's a, that's not just the surgeon that you meet, you know, I get all the credit, but there's a huge team of people that are like caring for that pet and, and making sure they're not painful and anesthetizing that pet safely. And so I think that's just important to kind of be aware of that. Well, this has been amazing. I, I've really enjoyed this d- discussion with you. So, uh, Kristen, do you have any more questions for Sarah? About a thousand, but yeah. I'll, I'll hold off. So, yeah. <laughs> we need to have we you back wrap. on again. Yeah. So, Dr. Sarah Boston, can I ask you the final question for today? Yeah. Okay, here we go. What was the last song you listened to before you did this podcast interview? Wow, I'm so stumped. I have to think. <laughs> Really? Yeah, really. You know what? I think it was, um, okay, I know now. But I, w- I wasn't actively listening to it. But my husband loves Sturgill Simpson. He's like crazy for Sturgill Simpson. So he was listening to Sturgill Simpson. So I think that was the last song I heard. But I don't even remember which song. It might have been the Nirvana cover, which is amazing. But oh, that's um, amazing. my husband's oh. a little obsessed with Sturgill Simpson. And also Jason Isabel. Those are his two faves. So they're, that's, they're both on heavy play in our house. <laughs> That's a great They're answer. Bad. Well, I think it was a bad answer because it wasn't really personal about me. But anyway, that's the typical overachiever. Really the yeah. overachiever hates her answer. <laughs> bad answer. I did a bad job. Yeah. No, well, you did- and I mean, you were also you were also getting to listen to Rumble sing the song of his people for a little bit there. You know, barking, sure. letting us yeah, know. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was letting us know that someone was coming, just in case. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show today. It was so educational. Thanks for having me, you guys. Love this show? Tell us why in a five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read it on the air. Also, make sure you are a subscriber. If you want to reach out to say hi or have a question about a recent episode, yay, well, feel free to email us at podcast at fitbottomgirls.com. And if this podcast jives perfectly with your brand, consider sponsoring the show. Get more info by emailing advertising at fitbottomgirls.com. Find all kinds of Fit Bottom goodness online and on social media at Fit Bottom Girls, Fit Bottom Mamas, Fit Bottom Eats, and Fit Bottom Zen. And if books and movies are your thing, check out the other podcast I co-host called Book vs. Movie, which you can find anywhere where you search for podcasts. Thanks for listening.